Well, uh, welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm Brian Clark. I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute and director of the Hudson Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. Uh, we thank you all for being here today, both online and in person, for uh, a discussion about uh, U.S. deterrence of uh, China and uh, some of the challenges facing us there. Uh, it is uh, notionally about uh, the recent report that we released on campaign to dissuade. But more importantly, it's about looking at some new approaches for how we might be able to deter China, given the uh, eroding nature of U.S. military dominance uh, and some of the opportunities that are presented by emerging technology. So with us for this discussion are uh, Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, who is the uh, former director of uh, intelligence at Indo-Pacific Command, most recently the former commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, and also a long-serving naval intelligence officer with uh, many storied uh, positions, including being the first uh, senior intelligence officer for China uh, in the Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, as well as serving as a special assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations, as well as the Commander of Fleet Forces Command, and many other positions. Also with us uh, is Ezra Cohen, former de acting deputy, uh, rather, former acting Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence uh, in the uh, uh, Trump administration, and also my colleague and co-author Dan Pat, who wrote the report with me, uh, Campaigning to Dissuade. Uh, so thank you, gentlemen, for all being here today. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion about new approaches for dealing with the challenges posed by China. So, so Mike, uh, let's start with you. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the study you know, that we just released kind of talks about the uh, eroding nature of US military dominance, the challenges that China poses, both in terms of its geographic advantage as well as its numerical and, and potentially economic advantages. Um, so what, where do we stand right, right now with regard to our ability, the United States' ability to uh, deter Chinese aggression using kind of the traditional approaches that we've mounted for the last 20 or 30 years, such yep. as deterrence by denial? Yeah, thanks, Brian. You know, Brian and I used to be uh, in the same company at Officer <laughs> Canada School back in 1988 uh, here, so if we could we were back then and we were projecting ourselves forward, I don't think we would have found ourselves. Sitting uh, in these chairs Yeah, now. sitting in the chair. <laughs> um, so uh, I trust Brian implicitly. We work together on the Navy staff in a lot of capacities. And, uh, and, and Brian's been working these issues for a lot of years and contributing some really uh, astounding intellectual thought and uh, giving considerations for uh, not only the Navy, but the Joint Force. And you know the challenges are legion with regard to our peer competitor uh, with China. And uh, I agree that we need to be looking at all forms of, uh, of uh, influence uh, that will prevent uh, a, a combat environment or a crisis that will in fact be uh, devastating for the globe. Not just for China, not just for Xi Jinping's own uh, position, because I think that if he tries to go after Taiwan, ultimately what will ensue will lead to the downfall of the chairman and the party secretary. Uh, and I think he underestimates this. Uh, but what we know is that if you take a look at the correlation of forces, you take a look at what would ensue with multiple players, uh, that there's no real winner in, in any of this. And so where we need to invest our time and energy is in prevention, uh, in uh, the right kind of thoughts and clear understanding uh, because miscalculation can lead you down paths, and they can be spirals that ultimately might tempt uh, somebody to take a military uh, solution to something uh, that uh, you know, I think would be uh, catastrophic. And so how do you actually prevent? This is the main strategy. 
Now, you need to have capabilities to prevail, and so the DOD is investing in long-range fires, a number of things that are designed uh, to be able to ensure that we maintain the right capabilities needed for any contingency. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, a lot of our efforts uh, need to go into the shaping elements uh, there. And I do believe uh, we have a number of things that are underway uh, that way, uh, but the challenging environments that we face today uh, means that you don't stop your adversary from doing something, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you want to shape it so that they don't take the most extreme action, right? So how do you, what can you live with? What can you tolerate? And what can you not tolerate? When do you need to move? What are the triggers for you to then be able to bring more capability forward or work with your allies and partners forward to be able to handle any kind of situations? These are tough challenges and everybody is working through it. And I'll just tell you that China's behavior right now has been the most destabilizing element of what's happening in the Western Pacific. And so everybody's concerned and everybody uh, west of the International Date Line is highly attuned uh, to ensuring that China doesn't miscalculate. So, so a lot of, in a lot of ways, we're talking about uh, competing uh, or, you know, in this confrontation that's preceding war. I mean, I think a lot of the Defense Department's focus has been on how do we deny an invasion once it starts and as a way of somehow implying to China that they will never succeed and therefore they shouldn't try. Um, but that approach leaves open this whole battlefield, if you will, of, of you know, confrontation in the meantime and allows China to, to gain in that, in that competition. So Ezra, you know, you've had a lot of experience going back uh, into your pre-undersecretary days in, in the special operations world uh, and the intelligence world. I mean, it seems like a lot of the opportunity space here is in this sort of persistent confrontation that we see that China's been you know, it, acting on or implementing or initiating in a lot of cases. Um, but it seems like we should be you know, in there as well in that fray. Yeah, and, and I think that um, you know, the department has made some um, you know, positive moves towards uh, institutionalizing a regular warfare. That's the, that's the lingo. Um, I, I do think that more needs to be done. Right now, the, the Chinese have uh, really engaged in quite um, uh, sophisticated a regular warfare campaign uh, against uh, the Pacific, in the Pacific for the past uh, 10 to 15 years. Um, it, during that time, we were obviously in our forces that would normally conduct these sorts of regular warfare operations, at least the core forces, were obviously very focused on the global war on terror. Uh, now that that, that has uh, largely ended, uh, it, it is an opportunity for us to uh, refocus those special operations forces on conducting a regular warfare um, in the Pacific. I think that you know, one of the advantages of a regular warfare is that it allows us to create many, many off-ramps to conflict. Um, and it also allows us to push the adversary towards an off-ramp. Not just create an off-ramp, but actually push them, actively push them towards an off-ramp. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, Brian, in your paper, you, you do a very good job of discussing how through a regular warfare, which by the way is much less expensive than a high-end conflict, we can create the environment that will keep things pre-conflict. Uh, and that's really what uh, the objective is. Keep this, all of the activity, prevent it from going to conflict. Uh, and, and I think that that's really where the department needs to do more on the irregular warfare front. Yeah. Uh, so, which, uh, it seems to make a lot of sense, but uh, unfortunately that's not where our effort has been. So, so Dan, why is it that 
you know, the department seems to be boresighted on this idea of stopping a Chinese invasion, and that's the forcing function that we use to guide the entire defense budget. And then, you know, why is it that that, that doesn't work anymore as a, as a deterrence option? Because that's what we do, we've done against previous competitors that we faced post-Cold War. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's great to be here with unconventional thinkers like, like you two, so uh, a pleasure to be here. Well, look, I mean, we can all, we can all agree that, that, you know, the department does foresight on this Taiwan invasion scenario. Uh, and we can all agree this is undesirable, and the department has a role in preventing this, or if this does happen, attempting to prevail, right? This is, that's something we can agree on, and that's natural that the department goes there. Its force planning is built around that. How much do I buy? What do I buy? This, this viewing things through this kinetic lens. But if we go back to how, how exactly do we invest in prevention? And one theme that I'm particularly excited about is a role of technology, not just in better weapons, but technology for deterrence itself, technology to support regular warfare, technology to support shaping and signaling, technology to support understanding of whether or not we're near an escalation threshold. But these things are very difficult to do force planning around, to fund in the budget, uh, because there aren't, you know, it's right at the intersection of operations and intelligence. There's not obvious entities in the department associated with them. There aren't program offices and there aren't funding lines. So it cuts the other way from how the department itself has, it has been structured. So we struggle to shift gears and we stay in our comfort zone where it's very clear, uh, there, you know, there's a very clear scenario that's undesirable. So, uh, which, you know, and, and there's also a lot of equities outside the department, you know, over in Congress, over in the defense industry that are advocating for the more traditional approach because that's something they can plan against as well as something they can, they can make money against. Yeah, so, so, Mike, so you mentioned a lot of things we could do to sort of prevent conflict um, in the intervening time. I mean, it seems, so first of all, a lot of people have been you know, raising alarm bells that China is imminently going to invade Taiwan, although it doesn't seem like there's much evidence to that effect that they're getting ready to just pour into the ocean right now. But uh, is that, are we in fact looking at imminence uh, in terms of the invasion of Taiwan? And if not, well, what are the things we can do to forestall that possibility? Yeah, I think we need to back up a little bit and say, uh, what motivates uh, China today to increase some of its harassment and intimidation activities? And if you're on the other side and you're in Beijing, you're seeing what amounts to walking away from our one China policy. There's more chatter than ever about <clears throat> solidifying you know, Taiwan's de, uh, de jure independence. People are talking about you know, strategic clarity. Uh, there are more and more visits to Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese uh, very tone deaf, uh, almost autistic in this uh, regard with regard to whether or not their actions created some other actions, right? They didn't never see themselves as causal. So you have this massive mil uh, buildup of the, of the Chinese military, then it's deployed across, you know, the first island chain and beyond, and then doing many coercive things, as we know, in the South China Sea and Sakakus and other places, claiming the Taiwan Strait, claiming these vast, you know, uh, stretches uh, of extraterritorial, you know, uh, places in the sea. And it's got everybody concerned. And therefore, the natural reaction is to increase your defensive capacities, right? Is to maybe get more realistic with your training and then work with your partners, whoever they might be. This is exactly what Taiwan's doing. Japan's doing the same thing. The Philippines, the list goes on throughout all of Southeast Asia. 
And so China doesn't see that they're at fault. What they just see is all these actions that are designed to contain them, to encircle, that there is going to be a new you know, NATO in Asia, and then they, uh, they push harder uh, because they see that they need to break out, have the freedom of action, and to achieve the rejuvenation and the dream that they have set out for themselves. And so there's this weird sort of perceptions uh, element there, which then gets to your point of, well, how do you shape those? And those are very sticky, in fact, because you're dealing with a very totalitarian government, right? You have a dictatorship. It used to be a one-party dictatorship, but under Xi Jinping, it's now one man. Dictatorship is very clear. Go check your political science definitions. And so in this system, how information moves, who's willing to, to speak truth to power, uh, those things tend to be harder in those kinds of systems. And so you don't know what kind of information flows to who is the ultimate decision maker about what to do next. Do I increase my uh, forces around Taiwan uh, to try to exhaust them, to signal to the United States that there's a penalty for, for apparently moving towards changing the status quo. The military uh, is being used in a way uh, that no other uh, instrument has been effective in shaping matters in the Chinese mind. Economics hasn't done it, informationally, warnings, diplomacy haven't, hasn't done it. And so they're left with the military instrument, uh, and they're using that very actively to say, if you don't hear me, uh, hear my concern, and see that you're approaching a red line, then I'm going to use the military, <clears throat> and we're going to have to do it in very strengthened ways, including missiles flying over Taiwan, right, to demonstrate a political point that they want to arrest what they see as a negative trend towards increasing Taiwan independence like de facto maybe shifting to de jour. That's going in the wrong direction for the Chinese. Therefore, they're acting to bring that back in. This is the fundamental perception and the thinking that then requires you to go look at yourself and say, well, what does American policy and statecraft need to look like in this sort of environment? And sometimes your best tool is not a big military platform or something made of steel that you end up moving it in a different direction. You, that needs to be complementary to things that may be related to not integrated deterrence, but integrated assurance. And integrated assurance doesn't just get focused on your allies and partners, but sometimes it has to be focused on your opponent, whoever it might be. So we need to assure Beijing that we aren't doing something that changes the status quo of Taiwan. It's the fundamental kernel of insight that you need to have as a starting point before you figure out what is my next move? So just a quick follow-on. So does this mean we need to leave open the possibility that China could achieve some kind of peaceful unification with Taiwan? Because when we've presented that concept to uh, folks inside DOD and the government, there's a lot of resistance to that. There's, you know, the, the feeling is, well, we can't let them uh, get any control over Taiwan or any more influence or control over Taiwan. Um, that's un unacceptable to the United States, which seems like you're setting up you know, the, the need for confrontation because Beijing will see that see confrontation as the main path to achieve oh. their objective. Well, look, Washington didn't set out to put Taiwan on the agenda. Well, they're, they're, they've worked with the, the Middle East issues. They had Ukraine and Europe and Russia and the invasion. Nobody set out to actually, let's lift up the Taiwan issue and let's agitate right. so that we can actually yeah. solve this problem. In fact, uh, our policy remains that the status quo with Taiwan is where our ultimate objective lies. 
no change, right. uh, except providing enough defense armament to, to ensure that P the PRC doesn't think that they can actually move quickly and conduct a fait accompli. Right. You have this massive military, you need a little bit of help to Taiwan to provide for its own defense. That's what it, it calls for in the Taiwan Relations Act. So that's what we're doing. Right. Um, the, the status quo is being changed by Xi Jinping, who has said uh, that Taiwan has to be recovered right. to be part of the rejuvenation by 2049. He has unilaterally set out to change the status quo and has started to build a capability to do that. This is the fundamental issue at hand, is that it's not about our policy. Right. It's about Beijing's policy. So, so Ezra, you know, if, if this is uh, about China you know, having this perception that they are you know, being sort of pressed back or pushed back by the US and its allies and, and their behavior. Um, how do you start to you know, shape that in a way that you know, makes them less concerned about that without backing down? Without, you know, the US can back down and be very you know, conciliatory, which seems like that's one path, uh, or try to convince allies in, in, the, in the region to be more conciliatory, but that seems like that's probably not the desired uh, path. So how do, you, how do do we go about trying to assure China without you know, un undermining assurance of our allies. So I think the first thing, and uh, Mike, I think, started to point at this, which is this really comes down to Xi's decision-making process. And we need to improve our understanding of that decision-making process. Um, you don't just do that through intelligence collection. You also do that through what you talk about in the paper, which is probing and doing things to uh, elicit certain responses that would help us understand the decision-making process better, but also for us to shape the decision-making process as well. And so I think that that really needs to be step one. Right now, there's a lot of talk in the US about deterrence. The problem is everything we're doing and all the money we're spending isn't deterring anymore. It's actually uh, increasing the hostility. So one of the things that we need to do, and I think part of that also has to do with our understanding of, of what she's risk tolerance is. So that's another part. It's not just the decision-making process. It's also understanding his risk tolerance. Once we have those two things, uh, a better understanding of those, we can then start crafting actions that actually will uh, create the off-ramps, avoid conflict. And, and, and frankly, I think a big part of this too, Brian, is you know uh, the U.S. has, um, and there's been a lot of talk in the U.S. kind of intellectual foreign policy circles for the past 20 years on this idea of regime change, knocking off our our, 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 our major opponents. Um, that, of course, is not, if, if she genuinely believes that that's our aim, not just maintaining the status quo with Taiwan, but if he believes we want to go farther than that, um, we can say goodbye to this idea of keeping everything pre-conflict. Uh, that will almost certainly guarantee that there is a, a very, very uh, um, um, deadly shooting war. So I think we need to, I think that that kind of gives you a few ideas. Again, you know, sailing an aircraft carrier and putting all of these sorts of armaments, you know, right into their face, uh, sure, it shows that we have the ability to project force. But I think we also need to be more mindful of what uh, that might be doing to Xi's decision making. And I don't think it's creating the effect that we actually want. Right. You know, Mike, so you mentioned, um, you know, that we're doing a lot of things today that are trying to influence the, or shape the environment uh, during this peacetime or, or competition period. Um, or it seems like might be, what might be missing is that feedback loop of understanding how those actions are affecting 
um, decision making and risk tolerances and perceptions inside the Chinese government. I mean, do we do we have a way of, or do we try to implement that kind of feedback loop? Are we trying to create, you know, essentially the the control theory model where we can see the impact of our actions and eventually be able to understand what might be happening inside the black box? I mean, it's the reason that the intelligence community exists is to have strategic intelligence and insights and allow us to have those feedback loops so we can make sure we can monitor and adjust our policies if they're not actually achieving the right effects. So, you know, we have hard target countries, right, uh, that are closed societies, paranoid, that are good at OPSEC, uh, operational security, uh, and China is, uh, is tough to truly understand. And so, you know, we have good insights because we're, uh, the money that the taxpayer spends on the intelligence community goes to amazing things that if you knew what we were capable of uh, in terms of learning these insights about others' intentions, uh, you'd be very proud. Uh, at the same time, you know, we don't have enough and we need to have greater understanding so we can map out sort of decision-making circles and who influences who and uh, how choices are made. And we've seen evidence that, uh, in fact, the, you know, information uh, doesn't flow as quickly or as cleanly uh, through the Chinese system. And we get the, the reactions that tell us that, in fact, they probably don't actually know what happened uh, here or there. And so we, we, are, we are knowledgeable enough to know uh, that that system uh, is clunky yeah. and that, uh, that there's no way to potentially sort of guarantee that you can get the right sort of um, uh, information in at the right time. And this is, this is the scary thing with regard to the Chinese view towards cutting off communications with the US military and not having hotlines. Their belief is that, well, first the US attitude ought to be improved. You gotta respect China, you gotta, you gotta not say bad things about China, and then maybe, if we can trust you, we'll have a line open to you. They also believe that if you have a hotline, that we're more prone to risky behavior because that's our, that's our kind of safety net. And so don't give the Americans a safety net to say, hey, they created a crisis and then they want an out. They want the ability to negotiate their way out of it. Just don't give them a safety net. And then maybe they'll be more uh, conservative with their forces and their behavior. All of this, whatever the logic is, leads to you know, very little official communications now. You know, even down in the track 1.5s that have become few and far between. This is a very dangerous trend in terms of our ability as major powers uh, to truly work out our issues. Right, right. So, so Dan, is there a way for us to employ technology to help to improve the ability to generate this feedback loop in the absence of maybe some of the official communication channels? Yeah, absolutely. I th first of all, I think it's, you know, even if there are no phone calls and formal communication, there is signaling that happens every day. We, the U.S., may not always be aware of how our actions uh, um, are perceived. We may not be aware of all the signals they're putting out, and vice versa, as, as you've talked about, right? Uh, um, the PLA is likely not aware of, of all of that. So, so one, it's important to recognize there is that foundation of communication today. And second, of course, we have, we have a remarkable intelligence community. But there's this frontier of 
being able to collect more data and operationalize that and push that information to a broader force. More military commanders, others across the government who are then able to inform or shape their actions by it, working towards some model of, of mission command around this. And this is really where I think, I think there's a real potential for technology. One of the things that happens you know, uh, all around us is uh, as computers and information systems become ubiquitous, you know, these put out signals. And there are so many more signals than there ever used to be. You know, a simple example is we can take you know, commercial EO satellites and commercial radar, and, and we can, we can uh, process those images to get change. Uh, so was there something built here or not? Uh, and that's from a pure commercial source. As we start to understand this ability to create in new indicators and warnings uh, that are appropriate and push them, push them forward to um, across the government and to military commanders, I think it's really exciting to both be able to measure base, baseline and help us understand at a more granular and a more real-time level how things that we're doing are affecting this baseline or how the baseline is moving. So, so Ezra, it seems like one of the challenges that implementing you know, Dan's approach would, would, be, would involve is um, how do we actually orchestrate this on the U.S. side to be able to make an action, take a probe, uh, evaluate the response, turn that into a recommendation for another probe? Because I think to sort of you know, get to Mike's point of how do we understand the decision-making process, you need like this iterative set of actions and reactions to eventually narrow down the the entropy or the, the uncertainty. And, and it needs to be done 100 times faster than we're doing it now. We can't wait you know, 30 days to respond to something unless that delay is intentional, right? I, I have no problem with intentional delay uh, I, I, or intentional delay. I have, I have a problem with unintentional delay, uh, which is where we seem to be kind of stuck right now. I think the biggest thing is um, there's no question that if this gets to conflict, there will be a, you know, a global combatant commander for, for, for China. Um, there will be one person that's clearly in charge of, of the effort. Problem is we don't want to get there. We want to avoid that like we've been talking about. So I think really what we need today is, is one person. I do think we need somebody who is singularly responsible for countering uh, and, and engaging in this, um, this pre-conflict activity uh, with China for commanding that uh, on our side. Uh, that's one thing. And, and, and one of the reasons for that is simply that to be successful in this pre-conflict stage, it's not just about what the U.S. military is going to do. It's about what the entire power of the U.S. federal government is going to do. And being able to chain together a U.S. military action with a, uh, I don't know, a DOJ action or a, uh, you know, a, an action from the Treasury Department, being able to do those things in concert is extremely important to being successful in the irregular warfare space. Um, and, and that cannot be done under the current construct we have in the government. There needs to be one person responsible. I think the other thing, too, is there's, there's just a fundamental authority problem, which is that uh, all of our uh, legal analysis and the way we conduct legal analysis over whether or not an operation is legal centers around this idea of, you know, what's the likelihood of escalation? Well, if our understanding of escalation, as we just talked about, is completely off, then we're always going to get to the answer that the new operation, that the potentially more effective thing, is not permissible legally. And so we, we've kind of found ourselves in this very um, uh, loop that's just stalling us out because of that. We just, and, and so I think to break out of it, again, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but I, I think that one step towards breaking out could be to have just a singular, singular person in charge. And, I, and we're missing that today.
Yeah, so I was going to add on that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I do think you know all roads lead to the National Security Council staff and the president uh, and how they want to conduct uh, their that, the relationship with China, what they want to uh, have veto rights on, and 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 what they want to allow Mission Command uh, to be and to do. And you find that the sensitivities are so high today that I think that there's uh, deep concern about uh, not holding very closely. Uh, everything uh, significant with regard to China. And, um, and to focus on, as part of our major strategy, uh, to work with our allies and partners and simply work with the good guys, right? And to be able to build up capacities and to deepen relationships and, and to be able to create an environment uh, which demonstrates, in fact, uh, that there are a number of partners that would be unwilling uh, to allow uh, violence or, or intimidation uh, to rule the day uh, anywhere, but particularly in a sensitive area with the economic engine of the 21st century uh, there in Asia. The problem is that there's so much that our society uh, is unaware of with regard to China, and there are many allies and partners who are unaware of many of the Chinese activities. So if you have overly tight controls in the information uh, domain, Right, which is key. So your insights that you learn may may feed into. I want to adjust my ability to go test and probe over here. Those are tactical and operational elements. The strategic game is to use your information power, right, to be able to highlight what your adversary is doing, which violates international norms, right, or would exact reputational damage on them, such that it shapes them to say the costs for doing this again and again are higher right, than thinking about some other means, right. some other method. Right. And today, if you look at the information domain, we are underutilizing this instrument of national power because of our tight controls and our inability to delegate and trust that there are a number of agencies and departments that, in fact, would stay within the boundary lines, the left and right guidance lines that would be issued from uh, seniors, and to be able to then do the job of rapid exposure of malign actions in the irregular warfare zones, which all of our friends uh, care about. Right. Our sensing systems are not perfect either, which means that we have to be able to get more eyes and ears forward than we do. We, we have invested in too many big platforms that are slow lumbering and they can't get to the right places. We need more persistent stare, which requires uh, more numerous uh, ways of sensing that we can do so with our partners and a sharing regime, mm -hmm. which then allows us to know exactly what the next move has been, and if necessary, taking the video clip or the photo showing the Chinese water hosing a Philippine ship or a military lazing Australian aircraft or dumping chaff into the jet engines of a P-8 from Australia. Those are the things that the information environment should be exposing so that Beijing has to own them. Right, because ultimately you want to condition that country to be a response, a true responsible stakeholder, right? And you want people to understand what their intent and their activities truly are, not just what they're saying from their podium. Right. So just to follow up on that, so the idea of using this sort of exposure, you know, naming and shaming, I guess, for lack of a better term, but the uh, is that is that going to be sufficient to cause China to? Uh, you know, back down on its uh, more aggressive actions and the potential for it being uh, 
you know, attacking its neighbors. I think using that instrument uh, is better than not using that right. instrument in terms of providing a convincing case and evidence of what uh, China's behavior looks like, right? And so will China stop? Probably in some areas not, if the strategic objective is to continue to intimidate Taiwan. Uh, they'll probably pay that price. But the rest of the world is watching. These other nations that don't have the benefit of actually knowing what's going on. Our responsibility, if you have more premier intelligence capabilities, right. is to share that largesse and the insight that you have with a number of people, right? It's not good enough to keep it within classified channels so your own decision makers are the most omniscient, right? You need to use the information for effects, and that requires a sense that you have to use it quickly before it becomes perishable, right? Yep, and this can also be a tool for being able to, this could be a probe in its own right. You know, this is a way of revealing or watching how the Chinese respond to it to see, well, what do, th do they appear to be neuralgic about? What are the things that cause them to you know, react and maybe pull back as opposed to things that might cause right. them to be even more aggressive? It highlights the true character right. of the Chinese, right? The true nature of their activities. And people want to understand uh, the nature of the danger. If they understand the true nature of the danger, they can do long-range planning. If you're in Indonesia, or if you're in Vietnam, or you're in Philippines, or anywhere in South Korea, you can, you can figure out what your investment strategy needs to be, along with your policies, to be able to deal with what is a, a genuine depiction of the, the nature of China's rise. Everybody, everybody's in search of understanding the ground truth. Ezra. Yeah, and I'll just say it, it's not just about you know can we share the intelligence or, or the information we have with the uh, with the leaders of these our allies and partners in the region, but we really need to inform the populace in the region. Um, obviously, in the regular space, that's extremely important. Um, it, it, if it does, uh, you know, if she does decide to push this towards war. Um, you know, knowing that the population in the region is not going to be very kind to him, uh, I, I, that, that's, that's something important, and we need, to we need to create that condition. I, I'll say that, you know, I think that this idea of this rapid ability to just rapidly get information out to the population, um, it, it's something that really DOD and the State Department have to work very closely together on, and the intelligence community. And um, that's really a place where I hope that technology can kind of help us get over that you know, coordination, this just this coordination inertia that we're really stuck in now, and I think that's what you're alluding to, so. Yeah, so Dan, I mean, you know, do we have ways of being able to, you know, get information to allies, partners, po populations, you know, more quickly? I mean, there's obviously things like Voice of America and you yeah. know, Radio Free Liberty, et cetera, but are there other mechanisms that, you know, might be at play here that, you know, can be used in an era when also there's going to be an increasing number of, you know, deep fakes and AI-generated content that could be perceived as, Absolutely. you know, this yeah. is just another example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most exciting uh, areas for the DoD. There's so much potential in technology here. I mean, what we've all witnessed over the past 20 years is this explosion of commercial technology in compute and analytics and algorithms and communication. We have, and those, you know, that's sitting on the floor. It's free for the taking. It's free for DOD and the IC to apply for this. And absolutely, you know, rings of networks to be able to share with our most trusted allies, with, with other partners and allies together. Uh, I, think, I think those are very powerful tools. Those are very low cost. These, these cost, you know, 
orders of magnitude less than developing new weapons. Uh, and then, you know, from there, of course, you know, you're able to start to take input from, from those partners and allies as, as well to build up a more complete picture uh, and to deploy analytics against that. So, uh, yeah, it's... So, so, so Mike, the, uh, so in the report we talk a little bit about the idea of trying to use um, probing and, and actions to create uncertainty you know, for China with regard to its likelihood of success in particular military actions. So it seems like what you're saying is that we, instead of creating uncertainty for the Chinese, we need to create certainty in that we're trying to assure them that we're not only going to publicize their actions you know, on the world stage and, and make them available to allies and partners. We're gonna to continue to do that going forward and we're going to always be you know, providing this you know, watchful eye on, on their behavior. Yeah, I mean, we had this uh, phrase about providing strategic predictability and operational unpredictability. Right. This is supposed to be a guide you know, for us. Uh, the Chinese see operational unpredictability and strategic unpredictability. See the dilemma. Yeah. The dilemma is that we need to work on our strategic part of it. And so where do we stand? Is it status quo for Taiwan? Like what, where do we put a stake in the ground and make sure that there's no confusion? Because our debates among the elites with regard to Taiwan provides a very confusing set of signals to them, including the debates that exist in Congress. And so, and so you, then you get the, the visitation that suggests that we're going to treat uh, Taiwan uh, as a de facto nation, those are the political elements there. So we need to do appetite suppression <laughs> on the political act and strategic activities to carry the highest symbolism that force China to think whether or not we're actually living up to our words. If they don't believe uh, that we are in a status quo environment, then we have a problem. Uh, and keep in mind the paranoiac uh, people that exist in the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, are inclined to not believe your first explanation that there's got to be some other here, so they'll discard the first even if it's true. And so we, we need to work on ourselves. This is look in the mirror and find out whether or not we need to do strengthened conversations with the Congress to understand that, you know, just sending codels after codels over there, whether or not that's wise or it's not, is it going to lead to something beneficial? Or is it simply creating more unnecessary friction and doesn't actually help the problem? Are you accelerating our, our crisis or are you decelerating your crisis, right? And so I do think that whether you're in the executive branch, whether you're in the legislative branch, whether you're part of the military or other agencies, we need to look hard at whether or not we are doing what we need to do to send the clear signal, the honest signal and live up to that, right, with astute statecraft. Uh, so these other things uh, are gonna be moot. Uh, you, you can try to shape and expose behaviors, but if fundamentally, on this particular core issue, if they believe, if China believes they have to act, mm -hmm. because otherwise uh, time isn't on their side, right, then you're gonna head right down that funnel uh, into something that we talked about earlier, which is not good for anybody. Right. So, yeah, so Ezra, when, in terms of you know, operational unpredictability or operational uncertainty, you know, what is the, you know, what's the tool set that we have there? And, and is that um, operational uncertainty just in terms of military operations, or are there things we can do you know, in the economic and, and diplomatic or information world that create that tactical level uncertainty without affecting the strategic relationship? Yeah, so I, I think what you're getting at, Brian, is you know, this idea that um, 
we, we obviously want them to understand, and this is what Mike is saying too, we want them to understand where we aren't going to go. Uh, but we also need to use, and we, we do have a lot of tools, both in the uh, cyber realm, um, all throughout uh, uh, um, our, our statecraft and economic uh, tools that we have at our disposal, at least creating enough, um, I, I think it's actually, there is a room for uncertainty, and it's the uncertainty in that like first level of decision maker around Xi Jinping. Um, if, if she feels that, uh, one, either he's not getting reliable information or uh, the people around him don't really know what's going on, I think that will uh, affect his ability to make a decision and, or, and at least make the decision to go into Taiwan. I think that there's a lot of places that we can really increase our efforts there. Again, this comes down to having a coordinated uh, government strategy having a quarter, and, and it's really the campaign idea, but it's not just a DOD campaign, it's really a government-wide campaign. And, and, and we need somebody to bring that all together. How do you pair a cyber action with an economic action? Right now, these things are uh, loosely coordinated, but they're not really happening in concert. So Mike, if we, if we try to create uncertainty in that inner circle you know, that she re must rely on for information and advice, is that potentially highly escalatory? Is that, is that a problem? Or is that really an area we should focus our efforts? Or should we try to keep you know, stability and certainty at that highest level in terms of our strategic level actions and intents, and then focus our uncertainty efforts at the tactical and operational level? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it depends what you want them to be certain or uncertain about, right? I mean, I, I want them to be certain that you know, if they try to do something uh, violently uh, and against their promises, uh, I go back to, the 70s with regard to Taiwan, that there will be a certain level of devastation uh, and that their results will be not just uncertain, but will likely, in fact, onboard uh, a major uh, defeat, an embroglio like they've seen in Ukraine. The Taiwans are now wise, uh, so they, they watched Hong Kong, essentially the freedoms crushed in Hong Kong by China's own choices. Um, and they are now awake, I would say, and they are on path to, uh, to maintain their own uh, uh, system of democracy right now. And so uh, I, I think that uh, there is enough evidence that the reaction would be devastating militarily. And I think what we learned out of Ukraine was that uh, don't underestimate the democracies that unite uh, no matter what the history has been, unite to be able to rise up uh, and demonstrate and signal uh, their displeasure. And I think you'd find that not just in Asia, but I think you'd find that in Europe. And so if you're in uh, Xi Jinping's position <clears throat> and you're thinking, well, I can just do, I can get my military ready you know, by 2027. And then when the geopolitical conditions look good, if I then can move, I'll move. Uh, the issue would be, a high level of uncertainty, not only that militarily they can successfully do a quick you know, operation, but secondarily that every other major Chinese objective that they've set out for themselves is going to be jeopardized by this one particular operation, right. including Xi Jinping's own individualistic desire to have a legacy greater than Mao Zedong, right? That those would evaporate right. like that, right? right? And so that's the certainty that you want them to have. And actually is the most probable 
most likely outcome, whether you're talking today, yeah. the late 20s, or the 30s, right. right? So I don't want certain things to be uncertain, right? Right, right. and that's really that gets to your point, that there's tools on the economic and diplomatic and information side that can help promote that certainty that the international response will be such that it's gonna undermine Xi's opportunities to pursue his other objectives and goals. And that it will ruin his legacy. I mean, that, that's, that's really, I mean, the, the idea that, um, I, and I think that, uh, I, I think this, there's, there's ample evidence out there, uh, but perhaps the Chinese aren't perceiving it, and that's something we need to figure out how to do more of, that uh, this will not cement Xi's legacy. This will lead to really the kind of downfall of his legacy in the eyes, eyes of the Chinese people. Uh, but the key thing is, uh, his decision will be based on the trust that he has in his forces. And uh, I think that that's really an area of focus that so we need. We're gonna, I'm going to ask uh, audience questions here in just a minute. So if you have questions, start formulating those, and we'll call on you in just a minute. So Dan, but to build on Ezra's point, um, operationally, you know, we could create a lot more uncertainty for China with regard to how we're going to operate or their likelihood of, of being successful uh, in an invasion on the terms that they would find acceptable. So what are the, some of those things, and, and are, are we doing those things today? Yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just uh, briefly zoom out and say, I don't think so, Brian. I don't think we're doing enough of that. And I think that's at least partially because we have um, a narrow view on this notion of denial and deterrence by denial. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it imagines that there's this binary trigger for war, that there's, there's an amphibious invasion of, of, of Taiwan, and it triggers a, a, a military response. And, of course, um, you know, that comes across um, and, and encourages the, the U.S. to plan around that. So, so not only do we think about the scenario, we do force planning around the scenario, we think about what to buy and what to deploy, and it ends up acting as a form of, of prevent defense. Right? We take all of our resources, we put them all in the goal line stand against this one scenario. Of course, what it discounts is that there are many possible scenarios that could happen, some which always stay below the threshold, others like a quarantine scenario or island incrementalism, which uh, are, are more ambiguous and maybe, maybe provoke other things. And so not only does it drive our force planning and what we buy in that direction, it also drives how we operate in, in predictable ways. And of course, if you think that there are other scenarios which are possible, you need to have forces which are ready to, to uh, act upon those other scenarios, which means that they need to be able to train and develop uh, uh, alternative ways of, of operation. So you can think about this as, yes, operating our forces in ways that could generate you know, continual surprise or be able to drive the operational uncertainty that, that the admirals spoke to. And again, technology can support that. Right. I would just uh, offer, I mean, lot, a lot of things that we do uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, have been obvious to, to many. And, and then uh, there are many things that we're doing in our campaigning that actually take uh, you know, what Dan's talking about and puts it in practice. Uh, I agree with the sense that we can scale that up, but those concepts are well entrenched uh, within the thinking and the planning uh, for the Pacific Fleet, for the components, uh, all the way through into PACOM and all the way up to the OSDP and the NSC. And so that is underway. I'll just tell you that, that what you would be proud of some of the ideas that have been converted into uh, the thinking there. And with a sense that, you know, the other guy is going to be working their AIML to be able to you know, use uh, machines to aid uh, predictability and, you know, the, the whole notion of making sure that you give data to those machines now so that they are completely, you know, uh, on the back heel, right? 
That is a notion which is translated into a number of different operational planning activities. So we have a, a keen sense of how to play that. And I think you can trust uh, Admiral Aquilino as a Inopegon commander, Admiral Paparo, uh, the genius of the Navy. Um, I think that uh, he's exactly in the right spot to be able to implement some of the ideas that you talked about. So I'm going to see if there's questions from the audience. So if you want to state your, we'll bring the microphone around. Um, but if you want to state your name and uh, affiliation, we'll, uh, we'll I'll go from right to left. So over here, we'll start with you, sir. <laughs> hey, Tom, she's bringing the microphone to you so everybody can hear. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> so given that the PLA has been pretty obsessed with cognitive warfare for a couple of decades, and that the strategy is built around that, how do you think they'll respond to something like this? Great question, Tom. Um, Mike, do you want to talk about cognitive warfare? Well, I, th I think that uh, this is embedded in the Chinese doctrinal approach uh, there. Uh, and I do believe that they're throwing their levers, they're throwing their instruments to be able to engage in it. Uh, and look, we're debating uh, this kind of thing. In, in talking about China and, and Taiwan, we haven't, we haven't talked about anything else China is doing. Right. Any of the other global challenges that face us, right? and our strategic interests, the penetration of our society, how Hollywood is essentially owned. So you can't talk about China, right? You can't do a movie or a TV series about China because they have penetrated. So the East is influencing the West, not the other way around, in serious ways. But here we are talking about just one single threaded issue. That, to me, is effective cognitive warfare, right? When your propaganda and your tools of penetrating a society are so deep, Right, that we can't have a lot of open discourse about China, right? And we can't have you know the entertainment uh, industry or our basketball teams, right? Actually express their First Amendment rights to talk about different things. I mean that suggests to you that Chinese cognitive warfare has been pretty darn successful in our country. Yeah, that's a good point. And then in the work, the little bit of work that we've been doing in cognitive warfare, I think most of the focus ends up being on individual. People tend to think of this as like you know, brain control, mind control of individuals. And instead, it's much more effective when applied to societies or to it's populations like at a population level. Right, 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 exactly. Um, next question, you, sir. Uh, Stanley Kober, formerly Hudson, years ago. Whenever I hear a discussion like this, I think back to Vietnam. We had CETO Treaty, Tonkin Gulf Resolution. North Vietnamese were not deterred. We bombed North Vietnam, rolling thunder. They were not deterred. Why do you think deterrence will work better with China now than it did with North Vietnam? Good point. Well, um, so you want to, I have some thoughts on that, but Ezra, you want to yeah. give me a chance on that? So, so I, I think really what we've been talking about today, though, is that uh, what we are, the, the things that are currently being hatched up and this idea of deterring through just, you know, overwhelming force is not working. Uh, and that really what we need to shift more to is shaping the, the uh, she's thinking uh, such that he does not take the actions that will lead to war. Not that we are going to just, with overwhelming force, you know, scare him off of that. that, that I think there's a bit of a difference there. And, and that's really what I know that Dan and Brian have been looking at is, technologically, uh, how can we do that? And how do we make better acquisition decisions that 
don't create deterrence, but change the thinking of the adversary. And, uh, and that's a bit of the difference. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's really well said. I, I mean, look, the, the reality of the matter is that uh, if it was really just a threat of overwhelming U.S. force, that threat of U.S. dominance is, is eroding. Uh, you know, China has the world's biggest navy. They're able to field targets faster and cheaper than we are shots on targets. So there has to be something different. And there's tremendous opportunity for the U.S. to be able to achieve its objectives if we shift to focusing on operational uncertainty and if we focus on shaping decision making. I would just, I would just say they're all forms of deterrence. And so uh, the economic instrument is probably the most powerful. And so the question of how to um, potentially use that uh, comes up. And I think that the Chinese are very wise to that and are trying to insulate their economy from what we've done against Ukraine in such a way as to you know, allow them to reduce uh, blunt uh, maybe our best form of influence uh, there. We, we have to be very attuned to that when our instruments become duller over time. Uh, what does that mean in terms of uh, shaping and influencing somebody else's sovereign choices? And uh, we need to be realistic about that. We can't just sort of get back to, we'll just sanctions the, the, the heck out of them and you know, the problem will be we solved. Um, I, I do think that we have to have a very clear understanding of the limits of our power, right? And I think we need to have both the disincentives and the incentives. I mean, the, the strategic view is that you don't want China to be some beleaguered country that feels like it has to act out in ways uh, that are highly disruptive. The idea is that you want to bring China in to see that it can actually continue to use the international norms and laws to benefit its own country. In fact, its rise is greatly attributed to the very international system that it desires to, to, to change in certain ways. Um, but how do you get them to have the epiphany that, in fact, their, their, their standard of living, the stakes for the CCP, their leadership, the country, are better uh, when embedded as a responsible country in the international order than some kind of rogue maverick country outside of it? That requires both carrots and sticks and a lot of swallowing our own pride and talking about you know, different issues and having those discussions that lead us I think to a better place. As it is right now, we're kind of in this spiral of declining relations and uh, friction that seems to be growing you know, every week. We've got to figure out a way to uh, course correct both countries uh, and others to be able to get ourselves into a better place. So I do believe you're right. If you only look at this problem of relationship between US-China as it's a deterrence problem, you will fail every time to actually get the strategic outcome that we're looking for. So, Mike, uh, to just follow up on that, so so we need to leave open the potential for China to be able to grow economically, grow its influence and national power, uh, you know, as long as it does so as a responsible player in the international system. Because it seems like you know a lot of the rhetoric on the U.S. side, you know, among elected officials, tends to be containing. Not to, they don't say containment, but they say basically we got to keep China in its place. We have to prevent China from you know being able to get more influence around the world. And it right. seems like that's that's sort of a recipe for making China feel like they're going to have to act out to get that influence. Right. I mean, I, I do think that we need to responsibly put our efforts uh, there at the same time, be keeping a weather eye on the fact that the way they're thinking in Beijing right now has uh, different objectives and different methods for achieving those objectives in mind. And many of them are Machiavellian. It's the end justifies the means, and not much is influenced 
them to change how they're approaching things. And so, you know, I do think you know this is the the one of the most complex, wicked problems that we face in the 21st century, for a reason. And we can't boil it down to just that simple thing about deterrence. Right, right. Which gets to the idea of you know a denial strategy is you know, obviously going to be you know an inadequate approach you know to deterrence. Right. There's an assurance strategy that it has to involve China too as an object of assurance. Right. That's one additional element, and then the list goes on. If I could just chime in briefly, yeah, right. I mean, a prevent defense is a terrible is a terrible play to just keep doing from the beginning of the game, right? That uh, one section in our report, Brian, you know, talks about uh, uh, competition, and you know, in a way, you can think about uh, this competition as it's about the strength uh, of of bonds with allies, with other nations in the Pacific and across the world, and whether those are trade bonds or cultural bonds or military bonds. And you know, the offense that the US should be playing is largely about strengthening those, right? Building the denser, tighter network of allies and partners economically, uh, culturally, militarily, around a sense of, of, of values there. That has to be the model for, for winning the game in the long term. And that model of competition doesn't, doesn't need China to disappear, doesn't need the CCP to, to collapse, right? That's, that's a competition that we can, we can pursue with uh, certainly the military, but beyond that, many instruments of, of, of U.S. power. Just one last thing, I, and, I, and I'll say that, you know, um, there's a lot of good talk about this now, I think what we're talking about here, and there's even talk, you know, from people at the Pentagon, they'll, they'll go to a, a conference or something, they'll say all these things that we're saying, but then they go right back to their office and they sign another, you know, $100 million contract to support the, uh, the, the denial strategy. And, um, and I, I just think that, you know, um, we really need to move off of this now, uh, this idea that it's just going to be denial, that it's just going to be this, you know, hard power deterrence that you're talking about. Um, but, but we need to see more than just words. There's a lot of words now. There needs, there needs to actually be uh, money decisions that are made. So I'm going to time for one more question, I think. So in the back, sir, next <laughs> Uh, hi, uh, I'm Ken Skabe from Marbury Corporation, a Japanese private company. So uh, in terms of the uh, safety net or a uh, hotline with China, so do you think that uh, it would be uh, operatable to build them uh, through uh, allied countries like Japan? Uh, absolutely. I think that uh, all countries, uh, particularly ones that uh, may have some Contention related to you know disputes, whether it's uh, ones that are maritime or uh, island-based. An example here would be the Sukakas uh, needs to ensure that they can uh, call and and clarify intentions and to uh, be able to de-escalate and not let one particular mistake that may have happened with a pilot or a mariner out there you know lead you know, countries to. Uh, then go down and uh, exacerbate uh, something that could have been controlled much earlier. So how do you nip things in the bud? Because mistakes will be made. And I think that's the, the great concern is that in Asia today, in the Indo-Pacific, there's a lot of dry grass. And so the potential for one spark to get, you know, the, to get spreading uh, much sooner is higher if you don't have the ability to, sh to shower cold water on it. And that's where the hotlines uh, come into play. And multiple countries uh, uh, should have them if they don't. But many actually already do have lines in with, with the Chinese. But particularly problematic right now between the US and China.
Uh, well, uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, is there anything else that you guys want to bring up before we uh, stop? Well, thank you very much. Um, so thanks uh, all for being here. Um, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your time online as well. Uh, so for Dan Pat, uh, Ezra Cohen, and uh, Admiral Mike Studeman, uh, thank you for coming to the Hudson Institute, and uh, have a great day.